Would you please take your Bible and find Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, we're going to begin in verse 7 in just a moment. The last time we were together in Mark a couple weeks ago, we finished the section that was highlighting those five disputes, those five conflicts that the religious leaders had with Jesus over different things. And we've been there, done that. I'm not going to repeat it right now. But that finished a section. So we're starting into the second main section of the book of Mark. One of my commentaries said that this section shows the development of Jesus' mission in the context of opposition and unbelief. So that's the context. These religious leaders in particular don't believe him. Some of the crowd doesn't believe him. There's opposition. There's unbelief. And he's continuing his ministry. It takes on a little bit of a a new tone. And that's where we are. We find ourselves at verse 7 of chapter 3, and I'd like to invite you to stand, please. I'm going to read this section through verse 19. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. And he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about to touch him. And the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Let's pray together, please. Father, we rejoice that we can read and understand your word today, and we do pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand, that we would know what Mark is telling us and ultimately what the Holy Spirit is telling us today as a result of this study time together. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive, that are ready to hear your truth, and that we would obey, Lord, that you would make whatever decision, whatever response is most appropriate, would you make that clear to us, and then give us your grace to empower us to obey. Please give me clarity, strength, wisdom in knowing what to share from this passage today that your word would accomplish what you want it to and we will rejoice in that in jesus name amen thank you you may be seated just to give you some structure and outline i will say that there are two scenes in our passage today the first one is by the lake and the second one is on the mountain just to let you know there are two different places jesus is as we take this section together quick review the theme of the gospel of mark is the suffering servant and his call to discipleship 
and the cost of that call to discipleship. And there are many interesting things, I think, in this passage today, but I'm going to try to stick to the main ideas as I see them, as I've thought and prayed and studied this week. And the first of those is that Jesus called his disciples and they came. That's basic enough, right? Jesus called his disciples and they came. Number two, Jesus called his disciples to be with him. So there's other stuff here, and I will go verse by verse, but those are the the main concepts I would like to get into our minds this morning. And along with those main points, I have a question for each one. Number one, have you answered his call to discipleship? Have you come to him? And then second, are you spending time with Jesus? Are you being with him? Be thinking about those as we study. Going back actually to verse 6, I'm just going to repeat the last verse to give us context. You may remember that in the synagogue, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, and that made the religious leaders very angry. They did not respond well to that. Verse 6 tells us, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. That's where we left off last time. Verse 7, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So how did Jesus respond to the religious leaders and the political party getting together and plotting how to destroy him? He withdrew. He retreated. You say, does that mean Jesus was a coward? No, not at all. He knew what God's will was for his life, and he knew what God's timing for that will was, and it was not time yet. He knew he had come to die. He knew he would die at the hands of some of these same religious leaders, in all likelihood. But this was not the time yet. So he just withdrew. He left the synagogue, and he went out by the lake, out by the Sea of Galilee. And picking up there in verse 7, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and from those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. First off, it says, a great multitude from Galilee followed him. So in spite of his conflicts with the religious leaders, Jesus is gathering a crowd from the immediate area around the lake. And when it says great, that means it was exceptional size. There are some scholars who think they've figured out that this could have been as many as 50,000 people. I have no idea, but it was a big group, whatever it was. And they were coming from all directions. It says that they followed him. And we're going to see that statement later about Jesus' disciples, the 12, followed him. This is more of a generic sense. This is they went along with him. And they're coming from all these different areas. And I know that some it's easy for us to get hung up on the names. and the, So I have a map here just to give you a basic idea. Everybody's coming to the Sea of Galilee. So we have people coming from Judea, the region, and Jerusalem, and that's to the south of him. So they're coming north. And it differentiates, for whatever reason, between those in Judea and then the city of Jerusalem. And then Idumea, that was the country of Edom. Old Testament, Edom is Esau. Preached an entire sermon on that in Genesis. And by now, it was pretty much considered part of Judea, but a separate area. So they were coming north. And then from across the Jordan, from the east, they were coming. And from the north, Philistia, Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia, excuse me, Tyre and Sidon, they're all coming. They're converging on this one area. Why? Why are they coming? Because word has gotten out 
that there is somebody doing miracles there. Frankly, they probably weren't there to hear Jesus teach. They probably weren't interested in what he had to say, but they wanted to see the miracles. The stuff that would go viral today on YouTube or social media is that kind of thing. Everybody's talking about it. And some of these people traveled 100 or even 200 miles on foot. They didn't jump in their cars and get there two hours later. They took days to get here to join these crowds, the great multitude. And it's not a mistake. It's not a misprint. You probably didn't even notice it for all the strange names. But it says a second time, a great multitude came from him, came to him. And it seems then that there are two multitudes. There's the, the multitude from there in Galilee. It says they followed, they went along with Jesus. And then the second multitude that came from other regions and came to him. Why? Because they heard how many things he was doing. The reports of the miracles drew the crowds. David Guzik said, it is wonderful for people to be attracted to Jesus. But if their focus is on what he can do for them instead of who he is, they will not follow him for long. And that's what we see here. They're not there to hear his next sermon. They're there to see the next miracle. Or some of them are there because they want to experience a miracle. So that's the scene. Lots of people coming from lots of different places. And how does Jesus respond to that? He prepares to withdraw. Verse 9 says, So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Small boat there, it's more like a rowboat. It's not like a fishing vessel of that time. And when it says, lest they should crush him, the press of the crowd, they were all trying to get to him. It expands that in verse 10. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. They had the concept that he has to touch me. So if I can get to him first, I'm going to get there. And so they were all trying to grab him. We read other places in the Gospels, just trying to touch the hem of his garment, touch his clothes, because I want to get healed. And I think if I, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch his clothes, then I'll be healed. Any of you like being in crowds? Like if you go to a, a ball game or a, an amusement park and everybody's there and you can barely stay together with your group. I don't really like that. But that's what Jesus was experiencing all the time. Everybody's trying to get to Jesus all the time. That's the kind of pressure that he was under. Maybe not day and night, but certainly all day long, every day. When it says he healed many, Luke 6, 19 says that he healed them all. He was healing left and right. He was healing so many of them. And Mark says those who had afflictions, as many as had afflictions, literally, that's a whip or a lash. Some of your translations may say plagues or scourges. And really, the emphasis here is that it's painful. It was ailments and illnesses that were painful. And they're there, and they're in pain. We, we just... In the previous section, saw that he healed someone with a, a withered hand, and we read of other miracles that he did. They're hurting. They're hurting physically. They're certainly hurting emotionally, too, I'm sure. But he's healing them. All who were sick, all who were in pain, but they're pressing about, they're trying to get to him, and, and just in case, he has an escape boat ready to go. That's the idea. 
verse 11, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. We've seen this before already in the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? That the demons, that's what unclean spirits are, they're demons, and they recognize that he is God. They've, they've seen him. They were created by him as holy angels, and then they rebelled with Satan. So they recognize him. And they're saying, you are the Son of God. And some people think that they're trying to exercise some, some sort of mastery over him. But they're saying, you are the Son of God. They recognize. They know. They don't believe. They, it doesn't change their behavior. It can't for angels, demons. But they're saying, you are the Son of God. And what does he say? Shut up. I don't want to hear that from you. Why? Well, there, there are two reasons. We've talked about them already, so this is review. One is that he does not want a lying demon to be speaking for him. That's pretty simple. And the other is that he doesn't want to be widely known or recognized yet as the Messiah. He is revealing himself gradually. He's going to reveal himself to his own disciples and his followers, and particularly the 12. But he's going to do that in his timetable why? Because God the Father has dictated how long his ministry should be. And we're at the beginning of it still. So it's not his time yet. We read that statement a couple times in the book of John. It's not yet my time. So he's on his timetable. They are the wrong beings. They're the wrong voices speaking for him, and it's the wrong time. But what do they do? They fall down prostrate. They still worship him, even the demons. They knew he was the son of God. The crowd did not seem to know that he was the son of God. But even their belief that he is the son of God, their, their knowledge, I should say, did not guarantee salvation for them. So he says, no, do not speak on my behalf. The scene shifts now. I told you that there were two scenes. That's what happened by the lake. At the lake, the crowd is there, multitudes from lots of different places, and they're there to see healings to see a show. So what does he do? You could say he withdraws yet again. And Mark, of course, is making it as succinct, as quick as possible. So he says, and he went up on the mountain. And we read that and we think, and he went up on the mountain and he called to them and it all just happened just like that. Well, that, that's where it's wonderful that the Holy Spirit has given us the three different synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to fill things in, where one person tells us this in one little statement, we get more detail from others. And Luke 6.12 tells us that Jesus spent the night in prayer. So he was by himself. He's pulling away from the crowds, probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. He's pulling away from them. He's even pulling away from the people who are following him, the disciples, as we would call them. And he's pulling away from everybody, and he's getting off by himself up on the mountain. And why is he doing that? He's doing that to get alone with his father and pray. That's the picture. That's what's going on here. He is withdrawing in order to do that. And what is the main point, the lesson that we're trying to see here is that he called his disciples and they came. But before he called them, he got alone with God. He spent time. We've already seen that in the book of Mark too, haven't we? That a long time before it was day, he went out and he was by himself and he was praying. 
He certainly was by himself for the 40 days that he was in the wilderness being tempted earlier in the book. So the point here is that he got away. He was by himself. You may have heard this before, but Vance Havner said that if we do not, if we do not follow Christ's example and come apart, we may just come apart. We're going to fall apart. And I'm sure that if we went around the room and I asked what kind of demands are on you right now, what kind of pressures are you facing, what kind of stress are you under, everybody would probably have something to say. I'm getting ready to start the new school year, or I'm homeschooling, or I'm a mother of young children, or I have to start a new job, or I have a new project, or I have a deadline this week, or this relationship at work is not going well, or this neighbor, or my HOA, or whatever. There's pressure on you. And how did Jesus respond to the pressure that was on him? He withdrew. He got alone with his father, and he spent the entire night in prayer. So it's not just that he got away. It's not, oh, I can't take any more of any other people. I need to get by myself. There are times we probably feel that way. But he did it for a spiritual reason. He got alone and he prayed. He called those he himself wanted. And what this means is that he himself, that, that emphasis there, is that he is choosing the ones he wants. And we're going to see that he chooses 12. That parallels what John tells us in John 15, 16. He says, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Someone said that in one sense, there's nothing in Jesus' three years of ministry before the cross more important than this. These were the men who would carry on what he started Without them, the work of Jesus would never extend throughout the whole world. Therefore, he made the choice with God's wisdom, and he called to him those he himself wanted. So if we want to make that as simple as possible, just take two words from early in the passage and two, two words later in the sentence. He called, they came. Would you say that with me? He called, they came. You say, that's so basic. Why are you wasting our time? I don't think I'm wasting our time. He called, and they responded. He chose which 12 he was going to ask, and the picture seems to be that the whole multitude and his disciples, as we know them, were all down at, at the lake. And he is up there praying all night, and perhaps he went and got the first one and then had them bring others. I don't know quite what it looked like, but he's, he's calling them individually. He's calling them by name, and they're coming up on the mountain to be with him. That's the picture in my mind. This is a third step of what Jesus is showing us, being an example to us in. He is under great pressure. The crowds all want a piece of him. There are people who are already plotting how to kill him and just deciding what the best method and the best timing is going to be. So he's under more pressure than any of us probably are ever going to experience. And how does he respond to it? He withdraws. He spends time by himself. He spends all night in prayer. And then he delegates. He realizes, because God the Father is showing him, it is your will, Father, that I share some of the responsibilities of this ministry. That I pour into these particular individuals for these next two to three years 
so that when I am gone, when I ascend back to the Father, there are people here to carry this on in the power of the Holy Spirit. He understood all of that as God. He knew what the plan was. And the plan was for him to get by himself, to pray, and then to call others to help him. Multiplication. And we understand that because we've read the rest of the gospel. We know at the end of Matthew and Mark and Luke, there is a statement that we usually call the Great Commission of he's telling them, go into all the world and share what I have taught you. The things which you have heard me say. What I've taught you, that's what you're supposed to go tell others. Teach them all things that I've commanded you. So even though, and we're going to see the list of who these people are in a minute, they are far from perfect. But he's going to share responsibility. He's going to share ministry with them. He's going to teach them what they need to know in order to serve him. And there we are at verse 14. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And then we have the list. And I'll get to that in a minute. From the hundreds and probably thousands of people who were there, probably dozens of people who were following him around at that point, who would have been faithful to him, he chose 12. Why 12? A lot of people think there's a parallel there with the 12 tribes from the Old Testament. Not that these became substitutes for those tribes, but but that's where the number 12 is significant. Maybe so. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 that these apostles became the foundation of the church. This is what he came to begin. This is what we read from the book of Acts through the rest of the New Testament. The church. I believe we are in the church age. And this group of misfits that he is choosing are going to be the foundation of the church that he is going to establish. Now, some of you are very good note takers and you're very diligent and I love that. Please don't try to write down this chart that I'm about to show you. Just look at it with me and if you really want it, let me know. I'll text it or email it to you. But this is a list of the parallel passages in Matthew, Luke, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. See, it's too small for you to see anyway. But I'll tell you that they divide into groups of four. And until I studied this this week, I'd I never knew. There were 12 of them, right? I did know that the first of all the lists is Peter. The last of all the lists is Judas Iscariot. But they break, break into groups of four. So the first four there, we have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And the order shifts a little bit, but the same four are the first four. And Simon, Peter, is always the first. The next group, if you can see across there, it's the same name. It's Philip. The second group of four, Philip, is always in position number five. The others change. And then we get the last set of four, and we have this guy named James, the son of Alphaeus, and he's always in position number nine. You say, why is that significant? Well, I don't know why it's significant, but I think they're grouped that way because we sometimes refer to those first four and particularly three of those four as the inner circle. Jesus is ministering. He is choosing all 12 he is going to have different interaction, different level of interaction, and different responsibilities for all of them. They are from different backgrounds. I'll talk about that in a minute. But for all of us in the room who are followers of Jesus and desire to be his disciple, he has different roles for us to play. And some are going to be leaders, and they're going to be the names you know. And most of us are going to be people nobody ever hears of. But he expects us to follow him and to obey him 
and to tell other people about him with whatever responsibilities, whatever gifts, whatever opportunities that he gives. So we have a list of 12. It's very orderly arranged, if you don't get anything else from that chart. And it's repeated so that we know who they are. You'll notice by the time we get to the book of Acts, there is no Judas Iscariot anymore. So enough of that chart. Let's talk about them. This list has four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, John, a tax collector, that's Matthew, a zealot, and a betrayer. That accounts for seven of them. Five of them we know very little about. In fact, other than the book of John, we know something here and there that Philip said or, or Nathaniel said. There's very little that we know about most of them. And these are the 12 he chose after praying all night. These are the 12 he decided would start his church. And we know so little about them. That should give us encouragement. So this first group, we have four fishermen, two sets of brothers. Simon, he gave the name Peter. We understand that. We'll talk more about it as it comes up in the book of Mark. And remember, Peter is the main influence for the book of Mark. James and John. So Peter is the name that Jesus gives him. And James and John. So of the, the three that are closest to him, he has special nicknames for them. James and John, what is their nickname? They are the sons of thunder. Why are they called that? We don't know for sure. Here's what we think. We think this is based on their zeal, on their energy. Somebody said on their intense, outspoken personalities. Maybe that fits you or maybe it fits somebody you know. What do we mean by that? Well, there are three times in the Gospels where we read about their zeal and energy. Later in the book of Mark, we'll get to chapter 9 someday, and it says there that these two brothers said, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him. We said, knock it off because he does not follow us. So they want it done their way. And they're willing to tell people, stop if you're not going to do it our way. The most famous story probably, well, it could be either of the next two. The sons of Zebedee came and said, teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. This is in Mark chapter 10. So this is also in Mark. We'd like to be one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. How's that sound? Is it okay if we do that? And Jesus says, that's not mine to give, and that may not be your place. But that, they had gumption. They had zeal. Luke chapter 9. This, this, if nothing else, seems like they should be called sons of lightning, sons of thunder, some, something like that. Jesus and the disciples are passing through Samaria, and the Samaritans don't want to have anything to do with Jesus at that point because he has said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And remember, they didn't get along anyway. So they say, you cannot stay in our hotel. We're not leaving the light on for you. You are not welcome here. And James and John come to Jesus, and they have a solution for this, and they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? Do you want us to zap them? We can just zap the whole city, and nobody will refuse us a place to stay anymore. That's their idea. That may be why he called them the sons of thunder. They, they have some violent tendencies. They have some real zeal and, and some misguided ideas. Matthew, we already talked about. He was called Levi in the last chapter. So he's a former tax collector. Therefore, he is a former employee of Rome. That's who he is. Which leads me to Simon the Canaanite, or Simon the Zealot is what Luke and Acts call him. So he probably belonged to an extremist party called the Zealots, 
Josephus called the zealots the daggermen. They were violent. They were extremists. They would be, in modern terminology, terrorists. They were totally opposed to anything having to do with Rome. So you have the picture now? We have former employee of Rome, tax collector, hated by most Jews, someone who is at the opposite end of the spectrum, Simon the Zealot, wanted to kill soldiers, officials, employees of Rome. And here they are. I wonder if one was usually at the head of the line or the back of the line, or if they were at opposite ends of the table. I don't know. They didn't like each other at first, almost guaranteed. And he's choosing from different elements of their society, different upbringing. We end the list always with Judas Iscariot, which means that he was from Kerioth, a man from Kerioth. And what, what we think that means is that he was the only one from Judea among the group. Judea is where Jerusalem was. It's the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom. So that's that guy. So this is, this is a group that would not necessarily be our dream team if we were deciding, right? I heard somebody call them the bad news bears. It's that kind of team, and he's going to make them into the good news bears by the time we're finished. But they are a rough bunch. The list starts off with Peter. What do we often think of in terms of Peter? You might think something nice like he preached the, the sermon on the day of Pentecost, yes, but usually we think of, oh, he denied Christ. The last one on the list, Judas, what did he do? He betrayed Christ. And then we have the five in the middle that we know almost nothing about. And that's the group. That's the 12. That's who he chose. There's hope in our God who uses broken instruments, right? He, he can use us. We are sinful. We sometimes say the wrong thing or don't say anything. We blow it. So did they. As we continue in the story, we're going to see some, some things they got wrong and how he corrects them. But he, he uses them. He teaches them. And the passage ends with, they went into a house. Could be translated, went home. And a lot of people think this actually goes with the next verse and the next section. But he chooses the 12, and they go into the house. Probably go back to Capernaum. So some of you are thinking, okay, I thought you said there were two points. Yes, I intentionally skipped... Part of verse 13, or 14 and 15, right in there, because I want to spend just a few minutes on this before we finish up. So the first point was Jesus called his disciples and they came. Is he calling you? Have you come? Have you answered his call? Second, Jesus called his disciples first and foremost to be with him. To be with him. What was Jesus' purpose for the 12 that he chose. What was his purpose? So I have a chart that hopefully is big enough for you to see, and you can fill it out if you want to. But this is from verses 14 and 15, where it says, then he appointed 12. The next word there, after he appointed 12, says that. What does that tell us? So that. The reason that he appointed 12. His purpose for the 12. And there are two things here. We have that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Let's explore this. That they might be with him. That is the first thing that a disciple is called to do. If you are Jesus' disciple, you have answered his call, your first, foremost, primary, most important to start with 
how else can I say this? Goal, your mission, is to be with him. To spend time with him. Part of that has to do with the meaning of the word disciple. Because we, I grew up, a disciple is a follower learner. Yes, a student, yes. That's not the half of it. It's closer to apprentice, that if you are apprenticed to someone for a trade, back in previous centuries, you go and live with that person. You may live in his home with his family. You get to see him in different situations. Night, day, good, bad, ugly. You get to see how he does his trade. And that's what you're learning. You're learning how to be a successful person in this trade. The skills of it, the skills in working with people as you provide a service or a good. That's the idea. Someone said, a disciple learned by being with and hearing from his master. Learning from the master firsthand. So the immediate purpose that Jesus had for the twelve was that they should constantly be with him. Someone said, this constant companionship with their master would qualify them for their future work as his personal witnesses. Fellowship with him must precede preaching about him. Listen, it is wonderful for us to share the gospel with others. We are called to do that. We are called to evangelize. It is good to teach. You know, I think it's important for us to teach the word of God. We don't have anything to offer until we spend time with Jesus. It's going to fall flat. It's likely not going to accomplish much if we haven't spent time first with him. That's what we're called to do. You say, I don't have time for that. I'm just so busy. Okay, let's go back. Jesus has people pushing and pulling and prodding at him all the time. He's under immense pressure. People are trying to kill him. And what does he do? He says, I am just too busy to spend time with the Father today. I need to go heal this person over here. I need to protect myself from the people who are trying to kill me. No, what did he do? He withdrew. He got alone with God the Father. He spent time in prayer. He didn't need to read the Bible, so, so to speak, because he was the Word of God, but he still obviously had memorized a great deal while he was growing up, humanly speaking. He had memorized the Bible. He knew how to meditate on it. He's spending time with the Father, and that's what he's calling his disciples to do. If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, if you are his disciple, you've got to spend time with him. So if you say, I'm just too busy, I can't do that, what you're really saying is, that is not a priority to me. I don't have time to do that. And let's just be honest, what you're really saying is, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I'm not a disciple of his. Because I'm not being with him. The first job of the disciples was simply to be with Jesus. And then he sent them out to preach. Because that doesn't even happen yet. Right now he's just choosing them to be with him. Later, a few chapters later, chapter 6, we're going to see. He sends them out to preach. So that's where this comes in, that he might send them out. He chose them that they would be with him so that then he could send them out. That's the process. That's the program. That's the deal. Within that idea of preaching, it's the same word we've seen multiple times already in the book of Mark. It's herald. It's proclaim. So he's sending them forth to preach. So the most important thing, the first thing to do is to be with Jesus. Next, preach. And then, 
to have power. Power to do what? The word there, power, can also be translated authority. That may be what your translation has. To have power to do what? And that leads us to these last two. To heal and to cast out demons. Because we in our society, just like the people of that time, they're all excited about, we're seeing people healed. We're seeing cast out demons. That was not the primary thing he called his disciples to do. They would do that. They would do that in his name. But that's not the main thing. I structured this on purpose. I don't know if you can see it well. But he appointed 12 for two reasons. The first is more important than the second. The first is that they might be with him. The second is that he might send them out. When he sent them out, he had two things for them to do. There were two reasons he sent them out, to preach and to have power. And the, the preaching, guess what? That's more important than having power, authority over healing sicknesses and casting out demons. I'm not saying these aren't important. I'm just saying they're not as important as the first ones. And we've got to get that straight in our minds. Some of us are saying, old or young, doesn't matter. I want to do great things for God. Good. Wonderful. I hope you do. I know he can use you. But guess what? The first thing you're called to do is be with him. The most brilliant military mind isn't going to be appointed general the first day. Right? He has to go up through the chain of command and fulfill all these different requirements. And the first requirement, the first thing we need to do is spend time with Jesus. And he'll have other things for us to do. And we'll do it in his power, in his enablement his grace, his strength. But we've got to get our priorities right. So if you want to summarize all that into one thing, this is a hashtag, not inspired. Here's what I got for you. Come be serve. I think that's it in a nutshell. He invites us to come. And he, when he invites us to come, that invitation is to be with him. Because being with him has to come before serving him. Just because you're serving him doesn't mean you spent time with him. We read elsewhere in the Gospels of those who cast out demons in his name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They didn't have a relationship. They hadn't been with Jesus. So we've got to get our priorities right and we've got to start in the right place. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus as your Savior and you desire to be his disciple, then it may be time for you to take that first step. I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to join his training program in the sense of I'm going to spend time, make time, might be a better way to say it, make time to be with him. Jesus called his disciples, and they came. They obeyed. But he called them first and foremost to be with him. There could be somebody watching, listening, Somebody in this room, you've never come to Jesus as your Savior. So he's inviting you today. He's inviting you to trust in him, to call on him, to find forgiveness in him, to find eternal life in him. That can begin today. But I know most of you, and I know most of you, your testimony, that you have come to Jesus. Have you answered his call to be his disciple? And when we get into our Romans 12 study, we're going to talk more specifically about what that means. But can you point to a time, for some of us there are multiple times, we have to do this over and over, that you, you surrender to him. You are ready 
to do whatever he's leading you to do. You're going to obey. It may be that somebody needs to make that decision this morning for the first time or again that I hear you calling. I'm going to follow. I desire to be your disciple, Lord. Are you actively, intentionally being with him? Do you spend time with him through Bible reading, through prayer, through gathering with God's people? So I'd ask simply, do what God's leading you, calling you to do this morning. I don't know what that is. I'm not preaching this to any one person in the room. But obey him. Follow him. Experience the blessing and the service that you may desire, but because you've done it in his order, in his way. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Anybody who would say, the Lord is speaking to me very specifically this morning. And I'm responding to him. I want to obey. I'm not going to get it right. I'm not going to get it perfect. I don't know why he would even want to use me, but I want him to use me. I want to answer the call to be Jesus' disciple. Old or young, male or female, if that describes you, would you please let me know that either by lifting your hand and putting it back down or looking up at me, making eye contact with me, and looking back down. Is there anyone who's concerned you don't know that you're his child? You don't, can't be a disciple because you don't even know him yet. Is there anybody who would say that this morning, that I don't know Jesus as my Savior? I'd like to. I kind of understand this, and I, but I, I need help. Would you pray for me? If that describes you, same thing. Look at me or raise your hand and put it back down. Our Father, you are good and kind and you call us such as we are. Not worthy. Not waiting till we have our act together because that will never happen. But you call us to salvation and you call us to be your disciples, to follow you, to live for you, to serve you. And you give us those opportunities to do that by your grace. So thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help us to be serious about being with you. That's what we need. We need your presence. We need your guidance. We need a relationship with you. We need whatever service we have to be motivated out of love for you. So Lord, would you help us Would you show us the next step that you want us to take and give us the strength and the grace to obey? In Jesus' name, amen.